For those of you that don't know me, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church. For the church, thank you for commenting on my attire today. My wife, after 19 years of marriage, has finally taken control of my wardrobe. This is the future. I know, I know, I know. It's a shock to me as well. It's like, what's wrong with hoodies? They just make me feel normal. I wore a hoodie around the house yesterday. She's like, whoa, what is this? I'm like, it's home. That's what this is. It's, it's home. Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 4. Today is a special day, as we've just experienced together. And it's a special day because next week is going to be the glorious celebrations of all things Easter. And so for this special day, I wanted to speak on a special topic which is the topic and theme of adoption. How the Lord in His grace, for all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, how the Lord in His grace has adopted us. And I trust that this topic today will capture our attention, it will overwhelm us, and by God's grace would it transform our hearts. So we're going to read the first seven verses of Galatians chapter 4. They read as follows. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is the under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I do thank you for this gathering of people that I have before me today. Oh Lord, did you pursue us in a way that only you can. Lord, I thank you that you are eager to encounter us this morning. This isn't just a message that we have to sit through. This is a moment where we're addressed ultimately by you, Lord. So speak to our hearts, change our hearts, transform our gaze, and would it all be for your glory. Amen. Russell Moore is the Dean of the School of Theology and Senior Vice President of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, United States. And I just want to start by telling you about his story of the moment when he adopted two boys many years ago from a Russian orphanage. This is their story. When Maria and I walked into the orphanage where we, led, where we were led to the boards the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, we almost vomited. We almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs, in the dark, lying in their own waste. Leaving them at the end of the day was painful, 
But leaving them the final day before going home and waiting for the paperwork to go through was the hardest thing either of us have ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxim calling out for us and falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears too. And so I turned around to walk back into their room just for a minute. I placed my hand on both their heads and said, knowing they couldn't understand a word of my English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus' words to his disciple in John 14 verse 18, but it just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. When Maria and I had at, last, at long last received the call to say that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. My mother-in-law gathered some wild flowers growing between cracks in the pavement outside the orphanage. And we nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight all to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried along at a hundred miles an hour down a Russian road. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back for the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, Sergei, that place is a pit. If only you knew what is waiting for you. A home with a mummy and a daddy that love you. Grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playdates and McDonald's Happy Meals. <laughs> but all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalor. But they had no other reference point. And to them, it was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. This was the new normal. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. But I still remember those little hands reaching for the orphanage. And I often see myself there all over again. You know, I've had the privilege of being a pastor now for 19 years of my life. And as I think back over that time, there have been many, many highlights. Many joyful and moving moments that I've got to experience where I've seen lives changed. Marriages restored. I've been standing next to people on the day they get married. I've been around when they've been dedicating children. I've had the privilege of baptizing people. I can think back on many years of joyful moments and baby dedications would indeed be one of those moments. I remember one time when we were dedicating a group of kids and as I introduced them around the, the, uh, around the stage, the one individual was actually sick on my foot. I still remember it well. <laughs> my mind is filled with many joyful moments and yet, although these moments of joy come thick and fast, there are few moments that bring me more joy than moments when I am introduced to a baby or a child for the first time by their newfound parents, babies or children that have themselves been adopted. 
So each and every time that's happened to me and I've been introduced to a new adopted child that's been brought into the church, it's been a moment for me where I've been able to pause and admire the parents and thank God for the parents and experience the pleasure of God towards these parents. Admiring their unselfishness, admiring their compassion, admiring that these kids don't run with biological blood through their veins, and yet they love them as one of their own. And each and every time I've been able to encounter a baby or child who has been adopted, I've been reminded of God's incredible love for me. Because in His grace, as spiritually defined, I've been adopted too. And so each and every time I've encountered an adopted child, it's been like a living, moving illustration of God's love for me and indeed all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so I wasn't surprised when I was informed of the following words, which start chapter 19 in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. He writes, What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one that has God as Father. But our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. My friends, so it does. The truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. And so here's my desire this morning. Here's my hope this morning. It's my hope this morning as we press pause on the theme and topic of adopting grace, that for each and every one of us in the room this morning, we would be freshly aware of God's personal, passionate, and particular love for you. Because that is the reality of adopting grace. See, if you're a Christian here today, God in His grace passionately and personally and particularly loves you, without a doubt. And yet, I encounter too many Christians across the world who are not certain of God's love for them, who are maybe suspicious of God's love for them, that may even think that in God's way is some way punishing them or minimally tolerating them. And yet, the truth of adoption looks you in the eye by God Himself and says, No. I love you personally and particularly and passionately. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I pray that today you'd be freshly convinced of God's love for you and that that awareness would drive you to confession of your sin followed by the experience of God's love for you, something that right now you cannot feel. What a text then we arrive in this morning in Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. Now, you will notice at verse 1 it does feel kind of that we're arriving at a party halfway through. You know what I mean? You arrive at a party, somebody's having a chat, you introduce yourself and they're already carrying on talking. That's what it kind of feels like when you arrive in the start of chapter 4 because it even starts, I mean that they're in He's sort of carrying on a conversation. And so if we're going to understand what's taking place here, we have to understand what he's already been talking about. So what is going on here? Just a couple of things you need to be aware of. The Galatian church that Paul's writing to here, they've been, it's a church that's been planted by Paul. It is undergoing serious crisis. Paul planted the church. 
He left the church, moved away from the church, installed new leaders into the church. But since leaving, false teachers have arrived in the church. And the false teachers are saying a load of rubbish to the church. They are trying to purport a false gospel. An idea that you're not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No, you're saved by observing the Mosaic law. And so you need to effectively become Jewish. You need to start obeying all the laws. And if you obey all the laws, then you'll go to heaven for sure. But this idea about Jesus, it ain't working out. And so the church is somewhat confused. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, he starts by saying, For who has bewitched you? He's looking the Galatian church in the eye and saying, Stop it! Did I teach you nothing? What do you mean? What you're being told are lies. It is foolishness. And this is heresy that you're being taught. Listen, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he keeps reminding them again and again and again. It's all about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about him. It's all about his finished work in your place. And in chapter 4, when we suddenly rudely introduce ourselves to the conversation, that's what he's talking to them about. He's still talking to them about their old beliefs and their old way of life. So he says in verse 3, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's talking about what they used to be like. You see, for the Jews, prior to Christ, they were enslaved to the law. They believed that if we can just observe all these laws, and there are hundreds of them, that somehow that will make us acceptable before God. And so they're just trying to do all these laws all the time. And there are Jews all over the world still trying to do the same thing. They're trying to observe every single law all the time. Why? So that they'll be acceptable before God. It's not true, but that's what they're trying to do. But what Paul wants to draw to their attention is that Gentiles do the same thing. Prior to Christ, they too have been enslaved, not to the law because they didn't have it, but to idols, idols of their own imagination and idols of their own creation, which is why he talks about it in verse 3, he talks about it again in verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's saying, listen, you freely followed false gods. All the different false gods of the day and age, you gave your lives to all those things. And guess what? You were enslaved to that as well. So the Jews enslaved to the law, the Gentiles enslaved to yourself and your own sin and idolatry. And the reason why this text is still here in the Bible is because God wants us to know by his grace that we're the same. In 2009 in Sydney, we're exactly the same. For some of us, we're enslaved to our own sin. That's why for some of you, you don't care about God at all. Because you haven't even thought about him. You've rejected him already. And you're not even that interested. The truth is we were all like that at some time in my life. I certainly was. I had a whole season of my life where I just wasn't interested in God in any shape or form. I wouldn't have even been here this morning. And if I did, I'd probably be coming because there's some baby. And then I'm thinking, is this guy going to finish soon because I want to go? For all of us, we find ourselves enslaved to sin or we find ourselves enslaved to our own laws and philosophies, i.e. we realize there is a God and we've got to find a way of getting to him. And any which way, we find ourselves enslaved. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the entire backdrop. But then what comes next in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, 
It's the story of what God did next. The story of adopting grace. And the story of how we know then that for each one of us in the room, He personally and passionately and particularly loves you. Two points then this morning. Here's the first. Number one, we see God's love for us in the means of our adoption. Verses 4 and 5. The provision of the Savior for those who were enslaved under the law and for those who were enslaved by their sin is wonderfully revealed in verse 4. C.J. Mahaney, who's the founder of Sovereign Grace Churches globally, he says this about this verse. He says, In these words, we encounter the turning point in history and the most important point in redemptive history. For apart from the words we read in Galatians 4 verse 4 and the saving events that these words describe, we would have no hope of reconciliation with God. But in these words and from these words, we discover that God has graciously intervened to address our sinful condition and plight and provided for us the Savior that we so desperately need. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. You were enslaved. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. My friends, behold the love of God for you. It's right there. It is loud, it is bold, it is profound, it is glorious in nature. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, freely following the prince of the power of the air and freely following our own sinful desires, and we had completely and utterly rejected God. Exhibit A. I had completely and utterly rejected God. I had exchanged, like we all do naturally, the Creator for the Created. I don't want to worship the Creator. I'm going to dig what is created and I'm going to give my whole life to that. I'm going to enjoy what He's given me. And if anybody ever has the audacity to talk to me about hell, I'm going to tell them to get lost because I'm pretty sure heaven will be my home. And even though I've rejected God throughout the entirety of my life, I somehow feel that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be with Him. Well, that's weird. But it's where we all start life. We reject God. We exchange the Creator from the created. And the Bible is clear that in our sin and rejection of God, we're completely cut off from God and we are completely unable in and of ourselves to do anything about it. We can't earn our way back. We can't get back through our behavior. There's nothing we can do through charity work or attending church or praying or anything else that's going to get us back to heaven. There's nothing we can do. We were dead, we were enslaved. We rejected him, nothing we can do. But God, but God, when the fullness of time had come, sent forth his son. He sent his son from heaven to earth, from Galilee to Jerusalem, from the manger to the cross. God sent forth his son. Why? For you. For you individually, not as a group. For you individually, he sent forth his son. Why? Because 
he loves you. C.H. Spurgeon, one of my theological heroes, says it this way. He says, For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. We moved not towards the Lord, but the Lord towards us. I do not find that the world in repentance sought after its maker, no, but the offended God himself in infinite compassion broke the silence and came forth to bless his enemies. See how spontaneous is the grace of God. For all good things begin with him. Isn't that beautiful? All good things begin with him, and so they do. God sent forth his Son. Behold the love of God for you. It is loud, it is bold, it is pointed at you. But the verse doesn't end there. Continue reading. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, verse 5 had ended after the first half of it. Then there would be enough for us content-wise, I think, to worship the Lord for the rest of our lives. To know we are redeemed. To know that he's brought us back again. To know that we've been reconciled to God. That's an incredible thing. To know that by his grace he sent forth his Son so that through faith in his Son, I may be reconciled to God, redeemed to God, have a relationship with God. That is an incredible thing, is it not? That alone, if we just pause there, should be enough to fuel 10,000 worship services just to know I am right with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ in my place, the Son of God whom the Father sent. But as the verse continues, you realize it didn't finish there. This story does not end with a redeeming purpose. It culminates with an adopting purpose. God's purpose in sending forth his son didn't just stay with redemption. It, cultivated, it culminated in adoption. In his grace, he made slaves into sons. And he made slaves into sons through the death of his Son. You see, seen correctly, the doctrine of justification should amaze us. To know that we are right with God should be an amazing thing. And in all honesty, the doctrine of adoption should overwhelm us. Because you realize He didn't just save me and then put me to the back of the queue, He saved me and then said, You now are my. You're my sons and you're my daughters. I'm taking you as my own. I'm making you my heir. He didn't need to make us his heir. Truth is, he doesn't need you at all. In Jewish tradition, you would need a son because part of what would happen is when you die, you would pass all that belongs to you onto your son. So you would always need a son. And if need be, you would need to adopt a son. God already had a son. He doesn't need you or me at all. But in his grace, he sent forth his son at the right time, not just to redeem you, but to adopt you into the very family of God himself. So Dr. Packer was right. For it is here in adoption that we encounter the deepest insight into the greatness 
of God's love. Dr. Packer then continues. He says, Justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of us in the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. And that is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us, guilt gnaws at us, making us restless and miserable, and in our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this is what the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, is it not? It's a glorious thing to know that I am right with God. I've been justified by him. I've been clothed in his righteousness. I'm now accepted by him. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by the Father is truly greater still, is it not? And that's the story of adoption. And so there's a great and a greater, a great and a greater still? Yeah. Yeah, there is. I want to ask you a question then. How do you think God feels about you? Honestly. As you consider your life, as you consider what you know, how do you think God feels about you? Do you perceive him as full of affection for you? Do you perceive him as desirous to be close to you? Do you perceive him as full of generosity towards you? Because my friends, if the words affection and closeness and generosity do not describe your perception about how God feels about you, then I submit to you, you are believing a lie. You're believing something that's just not true. How do I know? Because when the time was right, he sent forth his son and crushed his only begotten son for you. What more does he need to do to convince you of his personal and particular and passionate love for you? Because if something more is needed than that, what a sad day this would be. See, I have a son. In truth, I have two sons. But my eldest son, when he was born, was, well, he was one of those sickly kids, you know, that just kept getting sick. Well, he didn't actually get sick all the time. He was just immediately sick. And so he arrived, he was born, and we very quickly became aware something wasn't quite right. 
He only had one kidney that was working. Still, he only has one kidney that's working. Um, that's why motorbiking probably isn't going to be an option or anything else that might be remotely dangerous. Um, and he has one kidney that's working. He had two holes in his heart that needed to be repaired. And he had a submucous cleft palate, which meant he could not speak properly, or he couldn't speak at all, and he couldn't eat or drink properly. And I'll never forget being told this news. I'll never forget being around him upon this news. And I will never, ever forget the first time I took him to hostel when he was four years old for his first operation, where they were going to cut from the top of his mouth down to the back of his throat to take the muscles effectively out, turn them around, and move them so that he could speak. He was four years old. And I'm his dad. But we went into the children's hospital and we took him in. And at that time, he only used sign language because he couldn't actually talk. And so we would sign together sometimes. I wasn't very good at it, which was a bit of a problem. I remember one time when we were in McDonald's and he was doing something at the top of like a big slide. You know the big slides where you get stuck? And he got stuck up there and he's signing to me. Well, he's signing to me the word help. But sadly, I was a bit behind on my signing. So I was like, what? Yeah! And Emma's like, he's saying help! I'm going in! So I'm going to... That was about 10 minutes. But we'd sign to each other um, where I could try and, try and do so. And we arrived in the hospital, and as soon as we got to the hospital, he was immediately anxious. He's never been in such a big place before, and it was quickly apparent this probably wasn't going to be great news for him. And so the nurses would come round, and they were cool for a while until they gave him his first injection. Then they were not cool at all. And he's four. And so the night before his operation, he, he lay down on his bed, and I lay next to him, and we're chatting as best we can. And, and the next day when we got up, he was aware that it was time for the operation, and so doctors and nurses kept coming in, and whenever they kept coming in, he would just look at me and say, Dad, just talking? I'm like, yeah, just talking. You'll be cool. And then about three o'clock came, and they came down for him to go for his first operation, and he looked at me and said, oh, just talking? I said, no. No, not this time, darling. It's time. And so they put me in one of those wheelchair things and got me to carry him. And so we took him all the way actually into the theater and they wanted me to go in the theater with him. And while we're in the theater, they said, oh, look, Dad, can you put him on the bed? Because like, well, we're a bit liable. Okay, at least you're honest, thanks. So I'll put him on the bed. And then they said, well, look, you know, he might get a bit anxious. Can you stay with him? So I'm like, okay, I can try, but this is quite emotional. And so I started, I, I, I was looking at him, and as soon as they went to try and put a mask over his face, he just started freaking out. And it was awful. Because <laughs> they said, Dad, can you help to hold him? So I held, I held him. I held him on the bed. And I'll never forget, he's just looking at me. As if say, Dad, what are you doing? I, if I could have taken his place, I would have right then. But I held him down and they put the mask on his face and they got him to sleep. And then they said, oh, do you want to give him a kiss? And I'm like, he hasn't died, you know, give me a break. <laughs> but I did and then I left the room and I started to walk down the corridor towards Emma. As I walked down that corridor, there was just two different things that came into my mind. Firstly, I was aware of how much I love my son. If I could have changed places, I would have in a moment. And the second thing I came aware of is how much God must love me. Because he didn't 
just hold his child down for a small operation. He killed his son for me. He crushed his son. And when his son cried out, Lord, help! The father turned his face away and poured his righteous anger out on his son. It was always the plan. The son knew it. The father knew it. My friends, if you are ever, ever tempted to question, does God love me? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Why? So that you could be redeemed. So that you could be adopted. And the cost of it all was the crushing of his son, which he did for you. Behold the love of God to you in the means of your adoption. The crushing of his son. And then number two, we see God's love for us in the experience of our adoption. Verses 6 and 7. Look with me at verse 6. It says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, once again, Paul is trying to draw our attention to the initiative of God, thus revealing the love of God towards us. And so in verses 4 and 5, we see our position as sons and daughters of God were secured by the initiation of God by sending forth His Son. It was all His initiative. It wasn't you running towards Him. It was God running towards you. And then verse 6 and 7, we see our experience of that adoption is once again the result of God's initiative, namely the sending of the Holy Spirit into our lives so that we may experience what it is to be a son and daughter of God himself. Isn't that wonderful? It's all God's initiative. It's all him. I'm sending things to you. I'm coming your way. How dare we then look back at him and wag our fingers sometimes as if say, you should be doing more. Really? This is all God's gracious initiative. But notice also the cry. The cry, it says there again. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul wants us to notice this because it's important, because this is the cry of the converted. This is the cry that comes from someone who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is the cry that comes from the heart of an individual who has been adopted by God Himself. And this is important because although unexpected, this is a cry that should bring to the individual who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, this should be a cry that comes from within that brings you assurance. Assurance. That he really does passionately and personally and particularly love you. How? Because if that cry wasn't there, it would most likely be evidence that you're not a Christian. But if that cry is there, given to you by God as a gift of the Holy Spirit, it's evidence of his personal and passionate and particular love for you. C.H. Spurgeon once again says it this way. He says, I once knew a good woman, a good woman who was the subject of many doubts. And when I got to the bottom of her doubts, it came down to this. She knew that she loved Christ 
but she was afraid that he did not love her. For that is a doubt that will never trouble me, never, not by any possibility, because I am sure of this, that my heart is so corrupt naturally, the love for God never did get there without God putting it there. And so you may, you may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. It is the fruit of God's love to you and did not get there by the force of any goodness in you. And so you may conclude with absolute certainty then that God loves you, listen, that God loves you if you love God. Isn't that brilliant? If you love God, He loves you. How do you know? Because you would never have that cry in your heart without a, good, without a work of God in your life. It would never be there. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. You're at best average, okay? It would not be there. You're an average congregation led by an average pastor. That's all we are. Don't try to be superstars. Just be you. But there's the reality. If you love God, He loves you. Passionately and personally. If the cry of your heart is, Abba, Father. If the cry of your heart is, God, I don't know why. I don't fully understand it all, but I love you and want to follow you. That is the cry of the converted. And it did not get there by itself. It's the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And so we can say with absolute certainty, if you love God, then with absolute certainty, then He loves you. What a most unexpected place to find assurance of God's love, don't you think? What a sweet discovery it is to realize if I really love Him, it's absolute assurance that He really does love me. And then verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, there's something here that can be easily missed. But I don't want you to miss it. Most of the way through this text, all the words are in the plural. They've all got S's on the ends. So it's talking about sons. It's talking about the redeemed. It's talking about plural all the time. But not so in verse 7. It's as if God is looking each and every one of us in the eye and saying, listen, we've been talking about group work all the time, but let's be clear, I'm now talking to you. I'm talking to you personally, singularly. And so if the cry of your heart is, Abba, Father, that's only there because God has put it there. And so it is assurance and proof that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Isn't it beautiful? He's not talking to some vague multitude at this point. He's talking to you. He's talking to you individually and making sure you understand that I am passionately and particularly and personally loving towards you. My friends, if you're here today then and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour, God personally and passionately and particularly loves you. It's a fact. How do I know? Well, because 2,000 years ago, he sent forth his son for you. He sent forth his only begotten son that loves, who he loves more than anything we can even imagine. Any love you have for your child is just a dim reflection of his love for Jesus. And yet, by his grace and for his glory, he sent forth his son. Why? Because he loves you. 
He wants to see you redeemed. He wants to see you reconciled and adopted. And so the question that you have to wrestle with now is not, does God love you? The question you need to wrestle with now is, do you love God? He loves you. But do you love Him? Do you want to follow Him? Do you want to take Him as your Lord and Savior? Or do you want to yet again reject Him? That's your choice. But don't go anywhere. Say, no, I love God. I'm just not into it. No. No, if you love Him, you'd listen to Him. You'd listen to what He says. And you'd want to apply it in your life. That's what we do when we love people. It's a bit like if your wife says, I would love a necklace. And you say, oh, that's lovely, darling. And you go away and get her a dog. You know, it just wouldn't work out very well, would it? You know? God loves you. The question is, do you love him? Here's how we know whether you love him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. The issue is belief. Do I want to give my heart to the Lord? Do I want to take him as Savior? And do I want to bow my knee to him as my rabbi, as my king, as my Lord, the one I'm going to follow? If you really love him, do that. It's called Christianity. It's called salvation. You will, in that moment, experience the profound love of God for you. If you don't want it, that's your choice. You are missing out, but that's your choice. And if you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are a believer who's put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you, live then in light of adopting grace. Live in the awareness and assurance of his incredible love for you. He crushed his son for you. What more does he have to do to show you his love? We see his personal and passionate love for us in the means of our adoption. We see his personal and passionate love in the experience of our adoption. Let's live in the good of it with assurance, with grace, and with all glory then go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you for this great salvation. And I do thank you for the glories of adoption. Lord, when we pause and consider what you've done for us, it is to be overwhelmed. For you sent forth your Son for us. And so, Lord, as we come now to close in song, Lord, through our song, would you know our sincere gratitude to you? What did we bring to this? Our rejection of you. What did you bring to this? Your son. Lord, I thank you that you have paid it all for us that we may be adopted. May we live in the good of it, live in the light of it. And would we know of your personal and passionate and particular love. In Jesus' name, amen.